We all know George Washington is the founding father of the United States. Yet what qualifies Theodore Herzl to have that lofty role in Israel? He's referred to in Israel's Declaration of Independence as the spiritual father of the Jewish state. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we're conducting a series of interviews with well-known authors whose books cast light on key people and events in the history of Israel, Zionism, and of course, the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Makovsky, and I'm the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm excited to bring you these conversations with top-level scholars and policymakers about critical moments in Israel's history. When Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, proclaimed the state of Israel, he talked about Herzl and stood in front of his portrait. His picture is the only one that adorns the plenary of the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Israel's leading figures are buried on Mount Herzl, and cities and streets throughout the country bear his name. Herzl's trajectory was that of someone who very much wanted to assimilate into high Western European culture, which was opening up to Jews in the second half of the 19th century. Around this time, Jews began living in key European cities that had been denied to them in the past, and it seemed that Jews would finally become full citizens, no longer marginalized in the countries where they resided. This was a huge shift from the past, when Jews were denied admission into European universities and were instead relegated to live within ghettos. Herzl was born in Budapest in 1860, and he became a journalist and occasional playwright. He then became the Paris correspondent for Vienna's leading newspaper. As such, his path tracked those of many European Jews who seemed thrilled by the prospect of integrating into European societies. However, developments would change Herzl's trajectory. Several experiences throughout his education and career, from his experience with his fraternity in college, reading about the popularity of anti-Semitic essayists, covering French politics as a journalist to the emergence of an anti-Semitic mayor in Vienna in 1895, would gradually alter Herzl's worldview. He would grow convinced that, in fact, anti-Semitism was so deeply rooted in Europe that Jews needed to rethink their future there, and quickly. In his mind, the opportunities of what is known as the European Enlightenment would be met with a backlash of people who saw Jews as aliens and the success of Jews as threatening, coming at the expense of others. In this context, Herzl thought the answer to anti-Semitism was the emergence of a Jewish state. During that age, people started identifying not merely with religions like in the past, but with national groups like Italians and Germans, bound together by common bonds of culture and language. The state Herzl envisioned would fit with the 19th century winds in Europe that were increasingly 
both nationalistic and liberal. The idea of return to the promised land, the land of Israel, resonated among Jews. For close to 2,000 years, they had sat at their dinner tables and at synagogues next year in Jerusalem. In practical terms, some individuals did move to the land, and indeed, Jews were a majority in Jerusalem since 1844. Some essayists in the 19th century, like Moshe Hess and Leon Pinsker, referred to Zionism or the restoration of the Promised Land, as it was often called for by the ancient mountain in Jerusalem, or Zion. Yet Herzl became the father of political Zionism by seeking real-world solutions that he sought to broker with world leaders who could make Zionism become an actual state. His greatness was not just as a thinker, but also in his ability to create resonance for his ideas among people around the world and then setting up a worldwide structure, the World Zionist Organization, to bring it about. Instead of Jews scattered as communities among countries around the world, there would now be an international framework for decisions, and that would enable him to speak to world leaders not as an individual, but as a leader of a movement. This embryonic political structure that subsequently gave birth to Israel. It is astonishing to believe all Herzl did in nine brief years of public life, beginning at the age of 35 until his untimely death in 1904. The impact of his essay, De Judenstadt, the Jewish State, in 1896, reached Jews everywhere. It was translated into many languages, and this led him to convene the World Zionist Congress the following year. He famously wrote this just after the first Zionist Congress in 1897. Quote, in Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I were to say this today, the response would be universal derision, perhaps in five years, certainly in 50 years, all will admit it, end quote. Indeed, exactly 50 years later, a new UN agreed to the establishment of the state in 1947, with the actual state formed a few months later. The premise of Herzl's political Zionism was that he could persuade two key world figures, the Sultan of the Ottomans, who controlled Palestine at the time, and the Kaiser of Germany, who held close ties with the Ottomans, to provide the needed push for the success of political Zionism. Although his ideas electrified Jews in Eastern Europe, who had suffered pogroms or riots and discrimination, Herzl faced resistance also from wealthy Western European Jews who saw the Zionist project as a threat to their integration into European society. At the time of his death in 1904, Zionism remained a marginal movement among Jews, yet thousands from the Austro-Hungarian Empire and across Europe flocked to his funeral. It is said that Vienna had never seen before such a funeral. Herzl spawned a movement that established the very state he dreamed about. As such, his legacy was very profound. He took an idea and he put it on the international map. Herzl proved that ideas shape history. As Herzl himself famously said, if you will it, it is no dream. To discuss Herzl's worldview and the movement and the momentum he created we are joined by one of the most eminent intellectuals in Israel today, Professor Shlomo Avineri. Avineri has written a dozen books and is Israel's leading historian of political thought. Shlomo Avineri is also a professor of political science and director of the Institute for European Studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. 
We want to discuss with him today his concise and illuminating biography of Theodore Herzl called Herzl's Vision, Theodore Herzl and the Foundation of the Jewish State. Among other things, the book draws upon the 1,500 pages of Herzl's diaries to elucidate his thinking as he goes on this Zionist journey. This book opens the door for the reader to get to know Herzl and to understand what he envisioned. Welcome, Professor Shlomo Avineri. Thank you very much for having me. How would you describe Herzl's world growing up? Can you describe the European environment Herzl lived in the mid-19th century, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the specific climate for Jews? Herzl is, in a way, a symbol of Jewish success of the 19th century and the integration of a whole range of Jewish intellectuals, scholars, writers, journalists, artists, into the intellectual life of Europe, specifically uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But at the same time, he also shows the dilemma coming with this integration. Herzl was one of the most well-known journalists of the German-speaking world in the second half of the 19th century. He was one of the editors of the major liberal but conservative newspaper, Neue Freie Presse in Vienna, if you wish, the New York Times of his time. And he witnessed... On one hand, the enormous progress Jewish people made individually and collectively in the economic, financial, political, and intellectual and literary life of Europe. But at the same time, we also witnessed the changes because the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was in the 19th century the best place for Jewish people to live uh, under equal rights, they were citizens, they could vote. They were elected to parliaments. But the Austro-Hungarian Empire was changing from a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, old-fashioned empire into a modern state in which national identity was the core issue that was determining political uh, discourse. And Herzl was one of the first ones to realize that the liberal order of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is fraying at the edges, and that the Jewish people who were integrated into this multi-ethnic and multi-religious conglomerate are going to find themselves challenged by people who view themselves as Germans, Czechs, Poles, Hungarian, Croats, Romanians, and they will be asked, who are you? Are you German? Are you Czech? Are you Hungarian? Or are you a very strange people coming from somewhere else and not belonging to this place. In other words, the emergence of liberalism in 19th century Europe went hand in hand with the emergence of nationalism, and this created problems of identity, both for Jewish people and for the population at large. You write in the book that the more successfully the Jews were integrated into Europe's culture and economy, the more they were condemned for being different. So which events so sharply changed Herzl's perspective? How did he go from an assimilating European Jew at home in Vienna and Paris to someone convinced that a political Zionist movement is crucial? You make it clear it was not the Dreyfus affair, as many people think. Precisely. And it was really the success of Jewish integration, which created new problems and the spread of 
liberal democracy. The determining event, to my mind, were the municipal elections in Vienna, 1895, where for the first time there were elections to the city council and to the mayor. Before that, they were appointed by the government, if you wish, by the Emperor Franz Josef, who was a symbol of this multi-ethnic, relatively liberal situation. And what happened was that in the first democratic elections for mayor in Vienna, the person elected was not a liberal, not a conservative, not a socialist, but somebody who on one hand was very much concerned with the well-being of very wide spheres of population, but was what we would call today populist and to a certain degree a racist. Karl Weger, who was elected, was very critical about the role of non-ethnic Germans in the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He viewed with skepticism the old Jewish people who were playing in the intellectual life and financial life. He was skeptical about the large numbers of Czechs and Slovaks and Hungarians coming to Vienna because of the economic development of the capital city. And it turned out that a democratically elected mayor of Vienna was eventually a racist. And for this reason, the emperor, who had to countersign the elections, three times refused to appoint formally Luega as mayor. And there were repeated elections. And here comes the paradox. The more the emperor was skeptical whether he would like to see somebody who has some racist and ethnic prejudices as mayor of the capital city, the more people in Vienna in itself were skeptical about why does the emperor intervene in democratic elections. At the end of the day, in 1897, the emperor, under pressure from the Pope, among other things, because Luega was head of the Christian Social Party, as it was called, countersigned his election as mayor. And for Herzl, this was the beginning of the disintegration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire into what eventually came out of it and is not yet really finished. If you look at the wars in former Yugoslavia, they are the wars of the post-Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the disintegration of a multinational empire into a number of ethnically centered and sometimes racist countries is what happened in Central and Eastern Europe. And the Jewish people who could find a niche as a religious tolerated minority were challenged with new questions of identity. Who are you? Are you German, as I said, or are you Austrian, or are you Czech? Or are you coming from the Orient where you should really belong to? And doesn't this really speak to the fact that modern anti-Semitism was really in its formative stage at that point? Traditionally, the discrimination against Jews was predicated on religion. But as people began to define themselves based on ethnicity or in a national character, the idea of racial anti-Semitism starts to take hold. And Herzl reads about these people going back to 1883, 12 years before the Viennese a mayoral election that that was a key for him. That's one of your points that these seeds were planted in Herzl years before Dreyfus, the, the famous case where a French Jewish captain was wrongfully court-martialed and accused of spying for Germany. 
which unleashed a torrent of anti-Semitism in the media. Is it right to say that Herzl identified these shifts in the culture early on? Precisely, because he was a political journalist. He covered politics in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the various provinces. He was aware of the clashes between German-speaking Jews in Prague and Czech-speaking nationalists. He was aware of the road that led in 1914, if you wish, to Sarajevo. At a time when a lot of people said, well, those things are just the birth banks of a new order, this was a new order. And to Herzl, what was shocking was that this racist or racially based ethnic nationalism went hand to hand with the widening of the uh, electorate. That this was not something that was coming from conservative Christians who were discriminating Jews because of their religious prejudices, but this came from people who spoke in the name of self-determination of the German Austrians, of the Czechs, of the Hungarians. And then the question was, can the Jewish people be part of this new, invented, if you wish, national identity, where they come from a different tradition, have a different religious background, even if they're not religious. To her, this really meant something else. In modern times, Jews could escape prejudices by conversion, and some did probably quite a lot. Once you have racist anti-Semitism, once a Jew, always a Jew. The racist anti-Semite was saying it doesn't really matter whether the Jewish person is religious or an atheist or even if he converts to Christianity. His Judaism is in his blood. It is in his genes. It is something that he cannot get rid of. And therefore, there was no way out of being Jewish. Yes, there was a way out, Herzl, in the end, said, outside of Europe. And this was the idea that just as the various nations in Europe were striving and reaching out for self-determination, this is also something that Jews can and should strive for. The idea that eventually there's going to be a return to Jerusalem and Zion was always in the background of Jewish religiosity and in Jewish prayers. But what Herzl really created was the very clear call that, as he said in his first book, The Jewish State, we are a nation. We're not just a religious community, we are a nation. And like all nations, we have the right to self-determination. And it has to be outside of Europe because Europe is already divided among the various nations. They are sometimes at war. And to be can't fit, we don't fit, and we're not really welcome there. Herzl's essay, The Jewish State, De Judenstadt, had wide resonance. It was translated into many languages. He identified early on that the anti-Semitism was coming from an intellectual elite, not just from the margins of society. He decides that the answer is Zionism. Now, as you point out, he wasn't just a thinker, but he was also a doer. He was someone who was going to create a broad international organization that would give the Jewish people a a corporate persona, so to speak, an address by bringing delegations from all over Europe. It seems that one of the reasons he chose Switzerland because it was centrally located in Europe. So all the trains would converge there. He also knows that that Germany and other places, they weren't so welcome. The Jewish community was a bit nervous in Munich and elsewhere. 
he's very practical, but he has a flair for the th- theatrical. So everyone comes in tuxes and tails, and, and, and it's a very prestigious moment for this new movement. But what I'm curious about is how he sweeps people off his feet with his vision, especially in Eastern Europe. Those who have more of a sense of Jewish tradition see the links to 2,000 years of Jewish history, of homelessness. What was at the heart of his political strategy? In other words, Herzl is the founder of political Zionism. He's not the founder of Zionism. There were other people before him who talked about the concept. But you make the point that Herzl put Zionism on the international map and in front of world leaders before it was marginal and esoteric. So how does he think that he's going to be the one to convince the Sultan of Turkey and the Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany who had influence with the Sultan? What is his strategy to influence these two most important people for his cause? We know his objective is a Jewish state. But how does he think he's going to get there? How is he going to persuade world leaders? Being a political uh, editor and a political journalist, he was thinking politically. If Herzl would have just written the pamphlet, The Jewish State, it would be a book. And there were previous books about this idea. Herzl was a political journalist and political editor, and therefore he also created the institutional framework for the idea. Ideas, in order to be effective in the real world, need institutions. Herzl didn't have it. There was no worldwide Jewish institution. And therefore, as a private person with some intellectual influence, he decided to create this institution that had, if you wish, the hubris, the chutzpah, to speak on behalf of the Jews. In his diaries, after he convened by personal invitation a few hundred people in Switzerland, in Basel, who decided on a program to establish Jewish commonwealth in Palestine, he said, we have created the Jewish state. Now, Herzl knew very well that a convention of a few hundred intellectuals is not a, a state, but he created the institutions. And the institutions were not just created, but they had the anchor in Jewish traditions. For example, the first Zionist Congress, Basel, 1897, was convened by personal invitation by Herzl, and a few hundred people accepted, and I think there were many, many more who did not accept. But immediately they decided on having elections. Who is going to elect members for the second Congress? And the idea was that every year there will be a meeting, a Congress, that will be elected. So you create already competition, you create within two or three years, you have uh, Zionist, bourgeois, liberal parties, conservative, religious, socialist. You create already the parliamentary infrastructure of an organization that speaks initially for very few people, but is able to address world public opinion. And Herzl understood, and he had some of the contact that he can speak to a lot of people of influence. And there is a paradox. In the seven years of Herzl political activity between 1897 and 1904, when he died at the very early age of 44, Herzl met more leaders, world leaders, than any individual Jewish person before him. You mentioned the Kaiser of Germany. He met the Pope. 
he made prime ministers, foreign ministers of most European countries. He did not get what he wanted. He wanted that support, a public support, for the idea of creating a Jewish commonwealth, a semi-autonomous, eventually independent Jewish Palestine. He didn't get it. But he was able to put the idea of a Jewish state on the map of the public discourse internationally, not something which some Jewish intellectuals discuss in a very heated way in some neglected coffee shops or restaurants. But when Herzl died, people were able to hear that the leader of the Zionist organization that calls for a Jewish state has died. It didn't have much political power, but it had visibility. And as a journalist, Herzl learned from previous national movements, especially in the Balkans, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary vis-a-vis the German Austrian hegemony in Vienna, that in order to be effective, people have to know about you. And we know that national movements are usually bursting on the scene, sometimes by violent means, terrorism, assassinations, etc but and to get attention and sometimes even support. Herzl realized that to try to do it by persuasion. He did not succeed, but when he died in 1904, there were small obituaries, not large obituaries, and anybody who knew something about politics knew, ah, there is something called the Zionist movement. And when World War I brought about the disintegration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, the German Empire, eventually the Ottoman Empire, the idea of a Jewish state was already in the air. And there were moments, like the Balfour Declaration in 1917, where it was in the interest of the British Empire to create an atmosphere that would facilitate a Jewish mass immigration to Palestine. The work for this was done decades earlier by Herzl, by making the idea of a Jewish state something which people who followed politics were aware of. So it's not just the idea. The idea has to have flesh. He gave the idea, he also gave it flesh. In America and in Britain, there was the restorationist movement of Jews returning to the promised land. Going back, you know, to President John Adams, John Quincy Adams, you talk about Lloyd George and others in the British cabinet who were also aware of restorationism, even before Herzl. But what I don't understand is Herzl's strategy when he talked to the Sultan or in his two meetings with Kaiser Wilhelm, does he think he can leverage an anti-Semitic desire to get rid of the local Jews by offering Palestine as an option, to offer philanthropic help to ease their economic problems as a country? What does he think is going to be his ace card in these negotiations? He believes, of course, in the justice of Jewish self-determination and in the Zionist cause, no question. But he has to make the case that Zionism is in the self-interest of these leaders as well. And he's not always very successful. The only person whom Herzl somehow was able to convince to help him was the Minister of Interior of the Tsarist Empire, the most anti-Semitic country in the world at that time, Count Plebe, to whom Herzl said very clearly, I'm not going to put you against your anti-Semitism. I know it's wrong, 
but I think I can help you and we have a common interest. In other words, it's not enough for an idea which is good and moral to get the support of good and moral people. You have to have interest. And for Herzl, the model was always Greece. He doesn't always say it publicly, but it comes up in his diaries and correspondence. When the Greeks in the 1820s denied against the Ottoman Empire, there was a lot of support among intellectuals in Europe, Christian intellectuals, people smitten by the idea of the rebirth of classical Greek, Byron dying for this idea, if you wish. But eventually, Greek was able to eke out a small Greek state in the 1820s because it was in the interest of Russia to push towards the Mediterranean, and it was in the interest of Britain to stop Russia being too strong in the Mediterranean. So you have to work on the idea, but it's not enough. And the ability to combine idea, idealism and realism is one of the great weapons, if I may use the word, of Zionism. In Britain in 1917, you mentioned Lloyd George. Yes, Lloyd George was aware of the idea of the restoration of the Jewish people to Palestine. It's a, it's a nice idea. But in 1917, it was also in interest of the British Empire to find allies in the Middle East and to find allies in the United States, in the Jewish community, so that the United States will join the war in Europe. So you combine idealism and realism. Not all national movements are able to find the balance. I can give examples where the internal balance in Zionism went too much to one extreme or the other. But the fact is that when you combine idealism and realism, you can get a lot of support from very different people. And Herzl, when he wrote his utopian novel, Alt Neuland, Old New Land, in which he describes how a Jewish commonwealth will be established in Palestine, is focusing on ideas of social justice, is focusing on ideas of creating a society which will not be capitalist and not socialist, so was not a socialist. It will be based on mutualism, on responsibility to the commonwealth. It's ideas which a lot of people who may not be necessarily friendly to the Jews or don't really care about the Jews can, can support. And this is why Zionism eventually was able to catch a whole range of people from socialist to conservative, from revolutionary atheist to very right-wing nationalist and make them aware and support in different ways. And this is also part of the strengths of the state of Israel today. It speaks to different people on different levels for different reasons, because it touches on issues of their own interest their own ideas, and also, which is very important, the needs of the Jews. Jews will not be saved just by the goodwill of people, but also by the interest of people to save them. Exactly. What do you think gave Herzl the confidence that his liberal European vision would take hold in the Middle East? He'd never even been there until his visit in October of 1898, where he was kind of shocked by the squalor he saw, and he remained but very consistent in supporting a liberal vision with equal rights for Jews and Arabs alike. He wanted to be sure that this new 
Jewish state was not theocratic, but democratic. And given all that you've read in his diaries, I just want a sense of where does this confidence come from? Where does Herzl get the confidence that he could project this European liberal vision onto new soil that he didn't know very well? It wasn't the soil, it was the people. He believed that Jewish people are politically committed to the ideas of social justice, out of self-interest, obviously, but also out of values that go back to the Judaic tradition, even if you're not really very religious. Can one say that he was naive? Yes. A lot of 19th century liberals were naive, who believed that with the spread of suffrage and universal voting rights, everybody will be liberal or social democratic. Very few people in the 19th century believed that something like fascism or Nazism or Bolshevik communism is around the corner, and it happened. So Herzl took from the liberal legacy of the 19th century both the ideas which gave him sustenance and gave him belief that, yes, with Jewish people committed to ideas of social justice and self-determination, you can achieve what he hoped to achieve. Naive, yes. And therefore, there's no doubt the fact that Herzl was not able to achieve what he wanted in his lifetime, the great tragedy of his life. But eventually, when Herzl wrote after the Basel Congress of 1897, in Basel we have founded the Jewish state. If I say today publicly, the answer will be universal laughter. In five years, but certainly in 50 years, everybody will understand it and accept it. 50 years from 1897 is 1947, after World War II, after the Holocaust, the establishment of the State of Israel. So yes, he was ahead of his time, but he was ahead of his time, both in his belief in liberalism, but also in his skepticism about whether a liberal democratic Europe can give an answer to a small minority, the Jewish minority, and therefore the Jewish minority has to find a way outside of Europe with the help of the Europeans, both of the good people in Europe and perhaps even of some of the anti-Semites. There are two more themes I want to ask you about. One is you read his diaries. To go on the sort of journey Herzl did, you needed to be extremely resilient and be able to weather continual, constant setbacks. But in 1903, Herzl had seen the Kishinev pogrom and was ready to advocate the acceptance of the Uganda plan, a British offer to create sanctuary for the Jews in what is now part of Kenya. Herzl saw a need for this, even as a way station to the land of Israel. The Zionist Congress didn't reject it, but it hardly embraced it either. So I guess I want to know, did he develop a sort of melancholy, given all these setbacks, you know, the high hopes of 1897, being rebuffed by these leaders, and now that his Uganda plan does not exactly win, you know, warm endorsement. Indeed, as funeral, thousands of people show up out of respect for this extraordinary individual. But he's been facing setback after setback in many ways from these world leaders and his own movement. So what's his Herzl's mood towards the end of his life in 1903 and 1904? Well, the mood shows both his desperation and his ideas of trying to find alternative, even if they are very shaky alternative, like a 
night asylum, as they called it, in Uganda and Kenya. This was a loss of nerve, and I think one can understand it, because when the Kishinev pogrom occurred in 1903, this was the first pogrom of the 20th century that was supposed to be the liberal century, and it happened very near the border of Russia and the Russian Empire at that time, and Europe proper. And Herzl found himself in a situation in which he did not have a solution to refugees who were streaming out of Russia. And in Britain and other countries, there was already the beginning of anti-immigration legislation. So there was a loss of nerve, and therefore he was looking for straws, trying to catch whatever he can. It didn't really work, precisely because it was only realistic and not idealistic. Zionism comes out of a need of the Jewish people in a world of emerging nationalisms. But it also comes out of a deep link and belief in the link to Palestine, to the land of Israel, to Eretz Israel. When you, you think only in terms of realism, you end up with false hopes. When you think only in idealism, you end up with nice leading articles by some very interesting do-gooders don't have political power. The combination of power and idealism and the ability to step in historically in moments of crisis, 1917, with the disintegration of empires. When you come to think of it, 1917, 1918, three or four empires that were built up over centuries, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, the German Empire and the Ottoman Empire disintegrated, and here comes Herzl, and here comes in 1917 the Balfour Declaration, something basically marginal, but attuned to needs in an unpredictable situation. And my last question is this, how is Herzl's vision of a Jewish state being realized today? I realize it's very hard to summarize this question. How is the reality different from the dream? There is a paradox here. On one hand, the reality is exactly the carrying out of the dream. Does the real state of Israel really reflect all the ideas and hopes of Herzl? Obviously not. The United States today is not exactly the aristocratic republic envisioned by, by Washington, but it has to do something with his ideas. So when you come to Israel, you can, on one hand, say this is exactly what Herzl believed. The fact that there are almost 7 million Jewish people living in a sovereign Jewish state, able to defend themselves and able to show not only that they can defend themselves, but also create a vibrant, scientifically future-oriented society, is something that is exactly what Herzl believed. And at the same time, there are issues which Herzl did not envisage. Herzl, as you mentioned, believed that all citizens in the Jewish state should be equal, regardless whether they're Jews or Arabs or Greeks or what. Yes, this has happened, but at the same time, Herzl was not able to see, and very few people saw it in 1903 when he wrote Alt Neuland, that there will be an Arab-Palestinian national movement ignited and motivated by opposition to Zionism. In 1903, 
neither in Algeria nor in Indian. In India was a national movement of self-determination of African or Asian people. So Herzl was also limited by the burden of his time. So here Herzl, while advocating equal rights in the Jewish state for all minorities, was not able to see that there will be a very strong Arab national movement against a Jewish state. And we live with some of the dilemmas to this very day. So like every vision, the vision informs the future, but the vision does not determine the future. And the ability to inform the future and overcome obstacles, and sometimes very tough obstacles, like the Holocaust on one hand, like the Arab assault on the Jewish state in 1947-48, at a time when the United Nations supported the idea of a Jewish state in a partition, British Palestine, a Jewish state on one hand, an Arab state, the ability to survive those changes and adapt to them is perhaps one of the criteria of political longevity and ability to adapt to a very new situation with Jewish life for 2000 years was relatively good in adapting. Jews were usually very good under suffering and under opportunities which were offered to them to adapt to new situations. The 19th century opened the idea of equal rights. Jews in many countries believed this is the solution. It didn't work. Some became socialists, some left Judaism, others became Zionists. So the ability to relate and to respond to changes which were unforeseen and unforeseeable is one of the criteria of political success. And therefore, the idea of Herzl is a success story with an asterisk that no idea when it comes to reality looks exactly like the idea which was dreamt by its founders, but it has a relationship to it. Professor Avineri, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. And I urge all our listeners to read your book, Herzl's Vision, Theodore Herzl and the Foundation of the Jewish State. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for your questions. I greatly enjoyed the conversation with Professor Shlomo Avineri. He's an iconic figure in Israel. It was a delight for me to have him on as a guest. I think he drove home the point very clearly about how macro trends in Europe, the evolution from monarchies to nationalism, the emergence of liberalism. In each case, there was a backlash. And this was the wider context for Herzl. And being that he was a political analyst at a leading Viennese newspaper in Paris, he understood both the promise and the peril inherent in the idea of Jewish integration. Assimilation into Western Europe was not going to go smoothly. There were vested interests, so to speak, who saw this trend of liberalism as something that threatened them, and they would be determined to thwart Jewish integration. Professor Avi Neri's book reminds us that in 1800, at the start of the 19th century, hardly any Jews lived in European metropolitan areas. They were invisible because they lived in rural villages outside of cities. But by the start of the 20th century, Jews were very visible and were very prominent in cities across Western Europe. But by being so prominent and visible, the Jews also became targets of people who were populist and sometimes even racist who did not want to integrate Jews into European life. 
And that's very much the context Herzl operated in. He tapped into, for the Jews of Eastern Europe, a deep reservoir of love and restoration, returning to the promised land, the land of Israel. For others, it was about escaping anti-Semitism, including for Herzl himself. Different constituencies had different objectives, but united around Herzl's banner. It is a remarkable legacy for someone so young, so briefly in the public eye, to have achieved so much. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you join us for the next episode of Decision Points. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listen to all of Season 4 and to all previous seasons. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Papkin, and Jonah Schrock, and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.